Good morning, everybody. Okay, I'm going to read three passages to you from a book that I commend highly. It's called John Calvin, A Heart for Devotion, Doctrine, and Doxology. As far as I'm concerned, that's exactly what he had. He had a heart. And so when he started his ministry, he said, My heart I give to you, O God, promptly and sincerely. So this is what um, Derek Thomas has to say. Theologian, pastor, preacher, correspondent, churchman, statesman, John Calvin was all of these and more. Proverbially, he was more than just the sum of his parts. 500 years later, he still read, argued over, defended, even vilified. For some, his commentaries form the touchstone by which others are judged. For others, he remains the unopposed dictator of Geneva. Okay, the second quote I want to read to you is from Philip Johnson. John Calvin excelled in every ministerial duty he ever set his hand to. He stood out in his own generation for the sheer power of his preaching and his amazing command of scripture. His skill as an exegete and biblical commentator surpassed anyone the church had ever seen. His proficiency as a teacher of theology was likewise superior to all who had gone before him. His influence as a discipler of young men bore fruit that is still multiplying today. He was renowned for his competence as a church leader, his forcefulness as an apologetist for the truth, an apologist for the truth, and his remarkable ability to educate and motivate others. In the words of William Cunningham, Calvin was by far the greatest of the reformers with respect to the talents he possessed, the influence he exegeted, uh, exerted, and the services he rendered in the establishment and the diffusion of important truth. This is the task for today, but there's one more because it gets us to the heart of the matter. Finally, John Calvin, the man, was one of the most reserved of Christian men, rarely disclosing in public the inner workings of his heart. Only occasionally did he lift the veil, as, for example, in his preface to the commentary on the Psalms. Here he acknowledges himself to have been of a disposition somewhat unpolished and bashful, which led me always to love the shade and retirement. How then did a reserved, studious, tightly wired young humanist scholar of the late 1520s and early 1530s become such a powerful force in the service of the gospel? And the simple answer is found in the letter he wrote in 1564 to his friend, colleague, and mentor, Guillaume Farrell. Quote, It's enough that I live and die for Christ, who is to all his followers again, both in life and death. The echo of Paul's testimony is unmistakable. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Hence, um, that's from Philippians, hence the motto always associated with Calvin, I offer my heart to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. So this is the man that we're going to begin to understand today. It's a daunting task. And as far as I'm concerned, we're just whetting our appetite. And so to get started, I'd like to make a few introductory comments. And um, you notice that um, our presentations have followed a pattern, which I will continue. And so this is the title of our series, The Protestant Reformations, because there wasn't just one Reformation. There was Reformation going on all over Europe, and everyone had a unique perspective. Bo has already um, shared with you my personal focus, 
But I just want to emphasize that at Lincoln University, it's not just a college. It's a college that was founded on Christian principles and remains an institution that may well have inherited some of the um, uh, curriculum guidelines and certainly the spirit of Calvin's Academy in Geneva. So when I go to work every day, I have ringing in my ears the school's motto, if the sun makes you free, you will be free indeed. And freedom is at the heart of the Geneva that Calvin coordinated. It's amazing how these ideas all tie together. So these are my interests, English, I'm really English. I love teaching world literature. I'm really interested in city missions. Some of my research has to do with this urban mission movement, which in fact, come to find out, goes back to Calvin because he reformed the city of Geneva. Geneva was a brawling, drunken bunch of folk who couldn't get it together. So you had to have a Calvin who was a scholar and a teacher, and not only that, but a man with a deep and rich pastoral heart. Okay, so I love women's ministry, and I like church history, obviously, and I'm trying to coordinate the heritage studies at Lincoln because we all at Lincoln want people to remember that we're, we're at a very, very special institution. By the way, it was one of the first, if not the first, historically black college in the United States in 1854. But I also like to travel. So when this whole thing about the 500 years of Reformation history came looming on the scene, I said to myself, aha, I'll go find out what's going on. And so I went with students. I took um, some students, and that's why I have the map here, because we started out in London, took the kids to Rome, and then it was all over with the teaching. So I got in a car with a friend and went over the Reformation sites, driving, believe it or not, over Mount Blanc to Geneva, up through Switzerland, Vienna, Prague, hello, Huss, and north to Wittenberg, where I hopefully knocked on the right door with the 95 thesis. Okay, so what I've highlighted here for you are some sites in Western Europe that show you the general breadth and certainly the beginning of um, the period that we're talking about. Um, so next week, I think we're going to go over to England, but today we're going to focus on Calvin's Geneva. Now, the other reason I thought it was kind of neat that I got this assignment is because the girl I traveled with is a Catholic a devout Catholic, a passionate Catholic. And so when I told her that I was assigned Calvin, much to my surprise and consternation and delight, <laughs> she said to me, I love Calvin. So all of a sudden, the walls that were, that were prominent in the Reformation period personally were broken down as I continued my work with a scholar who upholds Catholicism deeply and yet loves Calvin. How does this work? And why is it significant? And I'm going to jump ahead to say, because I had a conversation with Debbie just earlier, Calvin wanted church unity. The divisions that are in the church were not in the core of his being. He wanted unity in the church. And why? Because Christ wants unity in the church. He prayed that we would be one. Now, um, as we go through this, 
Um, you're going to be hearing lots of different refrains, themes that go through Calvin's theology. And I hope by the end of the presentation, you will say to yourself, I think I understand the man a little bit better. Now, the other thing I want to say about myself is that, the, the, that I'm a Huguenot. And I have my family's French. And so my middle name is Demarest, and it means of the sea. And this is the Huguenot cross, which I love to wear. It's a very beautiful cross. It has a dove at the bottom of it. And I just wanted to say one anecdote before I get any further to tell you how Huguenots have affected me in my thinking. Uh, my mother uh, was 92 when she passed. She was at Kendall up there in uh, uh, Kenneth Square, Chats Ford. And um, I visited her regularly. And I would also go to the French table because I like to speak French. And so when she passed, I saved a lot of her stuff, including her clothes, including her shoes. And one day I went to the table in, at Kendall, and I sat next to a woman who was a professor of French. And I wheeled her out. After dinner, I wheeled her out, and I sat her down. She was in pain. I said, what's your problem? She says, well, my feet hurt, and my feet hurt. I said, well, what size do you wear? She says, I wear an eight. I said, I have, the, I have the solution for you. So I went to the back of my car, and I brought a new pair of shoes that I purchased for my mother. It was a size 8. And I went to her, and I bent down. I took her shoe off, and I put the size 8 shoe on. She said, that feels a whole lot better. And then she said, well, what's that you've got around your neck? I said, it's a Huguenot cross. She says, wow. She said, I'm a Huguenot. And then she began to tell me her story. This was the woman who was the daughter of the pastor in Le Chambon-sur-Ligny, which is a small town in the south of France that harbored Jewish children in World War II. She subsequently went on to marry an African nationalist, had two children, the youngest of whom is Mark Whittaker, who was the first African-American um, moderator on CNN. That's tangential. The point is, she was the daughter of a man who was a Huguenot, a French Protestant evangelical, who was involved in a movement to save lives, Jewish lives. And it's been, uh, there's a whole movie about it and so forth. But as she spoke, I realized that I was part of a religious movement that for centuries has uh, been motivated by the love of God to protect life and had to do it at the cost of life and had to do it often secretly. And I'm saying, wow. And, you know, I want to tell you that the more you read about Calvin and that whole era of the 16th century, the more you feel like you're being... It's like reading a mystery novel. It's like reading a crime. It's just the most... It's, it's so phenomenal. It's, it's hard to explain it. So this is another reason that I wanted to read Calvin. And because Calvin... And this is just gives you an idea of the kind of mystery that is attendant upon his life. He, we call him John Calvin... Well, we could just as well call him Jean Calvin. He, he Latinized his name. He was a Latin scholar. He used two, at least two pseudonyms. One was, I can hardly pronounce it, Charles Desperville. And he did this in the south of France as he was defending other Christian evangelicals so that he wouldn't be discovered. And then he, wrote, he also wrote under this um, pseudonym, Martianus Lucianus, and he did this later in Basel after he left France. So what I'm saying is that the, the, the history of uh, French 
evangelical Christianity is extensive, it's exciting, it's profoundly motivated by the love of God, which often costs us our lives. And so my goal today, our goals are this. What was the character of the man? Who was John Calvin? Who was he? He's way more than we think he is. I would like to also, in the process of this discussion, dispel some of your resistance to this man who's been associated with five, with this dreadful, lovely, wonderful acronym, but which so limits, so limits the contribution of this guy that it's a, it's a disgrace to our intellect to rest our understanding on that acronym alone. And that's one of the reasons why I'm giving it scant attention. Okay, so what was the character of the man? What was the cultural context that shaped his life? Like, what kind of world did he come into? And what was his contribution to the church? Because it's really what we want to take away from his life and apply that's going to make the difference in this, last, this discussion. Okay, so now I'm going to do a little bit of review just to bring you up to speed. Um, these are the four principles that I think we've been addressing in this um, series. Number one, Reformation has always been a part of church history. It's nothing new about it. There were reforms in the 10th century with the, with the monks. Gee, we ought to spend more time with the poor. No, there's a lot of reform going on within the Catholic Church. There's St. Francis of Assisi that you all are familiar with and his, um, his selfless devotion to the people. And then, of course, I love to talk about the secular voices of reform because reform happens in the layman. How many of you are pastors? Okay. We are lay people. And so the instinct for reform comes from the church. And so then you have people like Dante. Okay, he was a Catholic. He talked about purgatory. He got his theology a little mixed up. But he realized that there's something wrong in the state of Denmark or in, the, in, the, in Rome. And he, um, and, and actually, ironically, there's much that he has there's one thing that he has in common with, with Calvin, and that is he did his best work in exile. Don't ever think you're in exile, because it's in exiles that sometimes the greatest things are forged. I'm learning. Okay, and then Chaucer, of course, with Canterbury Tales, you read the story of the parson and, he, and, and the friar and um, the partner, the, the classic character, the partner, who's plopping along on his horse, being fat and sassy with his fur collar, selling indulgences. So Chaucer was already on to the same thing that Luther was on to. So reform has always been around. And then reform was based on the reaffirmation of scripture as a source of truth. And so we have this wonderful thing by Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And that's where we stand as well. We are inheritors of the truths of the Reformation. And I thought it was interesting to note that um, Luther, um, who came after Jan Hus from Prague, um, note, wrote this. I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. So you see the, the, the insistence on standing on the word of God is always where the church has stood. And the issue with the Reformation, and this is where Calvin comes in, he did not think he was doing anything new. All Calvin was doing was recovering the lost truths of the scripture. It was Calvin was so focused. I have such admiration for his scholarship because for him it was like opening up 
an onion. You know, you get until you get the heart. Or, or an artichoke, you know. You take off the leaves and you get to the heart. Okay. Okay, so the third issue about reform was that it involved all aspects of society. Um, Luther, of course, was the man for the time when it happened without the printing press. It involves political leadership. The crisis in Geneva was not just a religious crisis. It was a political crisis. So you cannot understand the tensions and the, the horror, really, of Reformation culture unless you understand the relationship of politics and religion, and, and God help us to do that. And um, the third issue was that um, there was extensive theological debate going on among all these people, the Lord's Supper, you know, all these different issues that we think about as Christians, um, baptism and so forth. So, so it involved the theologians, and then most importantly, of course, it involved the whole body of Christ. So when you talk about Reformation, you're not just talking about what goes on in the church, although that's the beginning of it. You're talking about what's going on in society and how it infiltrates society. And then the fourth thing is that the Protestant Reformations were international. And I just want to, this will bring us up to where we're going to start today, and that we have Wycliffe in England who influenced John Huss. Huss got his ideas from Wycliffe. Luther respected Huss. Zwingli, we heard about last week. Tyndale's over there, lost his life for the Bible. Translation. And now we come to John Calvin. Okay. So let's ask this question. I would like to throw this back into your lap for a minute and ask you, how would you, given what you've studied so far, characterize the times in which the reformers lived? Could we come up with just a few observations that you're thinking as you consider this period? Yes? Theology was dictated by the Catholic Church. Okay. Okay, good. Theology was dictated by the Catholic Church, and that's what they're knocking against. Yes, Patrick. Okay, that's exactly right. So we have the Catholic Church as a stronghold. Along comes the printing press and these new ideas that are coming, and it, it democratized. And that whole issue of de- democracy, we can, we can point to the Reformation and say thank you for helping us along that direction. Not that it wasn't there way earlier, but anything else? You had uh, society was more, sense, more uh, taken apart by the richer people and then so you had classes. Class society, Okay. Yeah. Okay, tumultuous and unstable. Anything else? Those are all good points. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Very, very much so. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's no end to church history, so we'll we'll stay with that. But I would like to um, pick up on this tumultuous point as we go through the life of John Calvin. So now I'm going to give you some basic points about his life so that you know a little bit more about him as a person. He was born in a town uh, north of Paris. He was trained for a church career at home and at the University of Paris. And one of the things that characterizes John Calvin, and I was reading this actually last night, is his submission to authority. Now, Calvin has emerged as perhaps, as we read it first, the large, this incredible voice for Christendom. But Calvin submitted himself 
not only to the authority of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, but also to his father and to his mentors in the faith. We see it twice in his life. So this is the beginning of a young man, again, whose discipline, I think if there's one thing we're missing in the church today, to be honest with you, is this aspect of personal discipline, especially as it comes in the area of scholarship. I mean, I'm in education. I, am, uh, I pity our young people. I pity what I see sometimes because they're so, so absent. But you don't see that in Calvin. You see a mind that is well-trained, so well-trained, and so well-prepared was he for his lectures. I was telling Bo this morning that he did not rest. He didn't, I know other, other people did, but Calvin's mind was so ingrained with the scriptures, so thoroughly prepared was he that he could come to a lecture like this and have the Holy Spirit guide his thoughts in such a way that these sermons come out as works of art. I mean, there's an eloquence and a simplicity, by the way, I thought that Calvin was going to be absolutely unintelligible. But even but when I read what he had to say about prayer, it's like, oh my goodness, I can relate to this. This is beautiful. So there's an eloquence and a simplicity about Calvin's work, which, granted, was originally written in Latin, but nevertheless, so you can give some credit to the translator, but I am very impressed with the dedication and the depth of his scholarship. It started because his father said, you're going to be in the church. He said, okay. But then his father said, wait a minute, you'll get more money if you study the law. So he went to New Orleans. To New, or he went to Orleans, old Orleans. Okay. <laughs> and he, he studied there, and he was influenced by these important people. The only one of which I'm going to highlight to you is Theodore Beza. Because in his youth, he, we're talking, I think he's about 15 at this point. Well, y'all, you do the math. Well, how old is he at this point? 20, okay? About, about that? Yeah? Okay. So in his youth, he met the man who would be his successor in Geneva's Academy. Now think about it. Isn't it wonderful when you have a friend that you've known for life? Calvin collected these people. They were his intimate friends. They shaped his choices. They shaped his career. Beza was the big one. We'll, we'll run into him later. Then he began to practice law, and then he publishes his first works. Calvin wanted to be a scholar. To be a scholar in this era was to be a humanist. So to be a humanist scholar, you have to publish something. So he publishes a commentary on Seneca's ideas on clemency, mercy. Isn't it interesting that he picked mercy? Because Calvin's theology rests on the mercy and the love of God. But he didn't get it here. It was only beginning. So isn't it wonderful that the Lord does stuff for us in our youth that are stepping stones to what comes later? That's pretty cool. Okay, so he continues his studies in Paris, and he begins to read scripture, and then we have this moment of what appears to be conversion. And Calvin doesn't say much about this. It is contained in a personal narrative in his commentary in the Psalms. And he says it happened suddenly. And it happened um, suddenly. Um, But let me just tell you exactly what he said. He said, when I was a boy, my father destined me for the study of theology. But afterwards, when he considered that something else might bring me more wealth, he changed his purpose. 
Thus it came to pass that I was withdrawn from the study of philosophy and set to the study of law. To this pursuit I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of the Father. But God, in his secret guidance, in the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. And first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, though I was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one of my from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that I did not altogether leave off my other studies, but I pursued them with less ardor. So you see here, in this context, he begins, it's like the seed of the gospel was planted in his heart, and it grew and it grew. And what you see throughout Calvin's career with five revisions of the Institutes is a gradual understanding of the degree to which the Christian is transformed by the word of God, but also the degree to which the scriptures inform all areas of our lives. I I think most people would say that this is one of the key words in Calvin's life. God subdued my heart to docility. His heart had been hardened. He was obedient. His heart had been hardened to the truths of the gospel, but now he's really going to get going. So, um, now, he go, he's in Paris, and he is accused of heresy by ghostwriting for Nicholas Kopp. Nicholas Kopp was the rector of the University of Paris. Kopp was summarily ousted, but then they thought, aha, probably Calvin wrote his speech. It was like a, um, you know, a graduation <laughs> speech or something. But whatever it was, Calvin had to hightail it out of town. And this is where it gets exciting. So he escapes from a third-story window with bedsheets. Now, doesn't that sound like you know something out of a novel? And then Calvin's life begins to be itinerant. Why? Because if he stayed put in any one time, he would probably be copped into jail and executed. So he lived itinerantly. And he sought refuge with people all over Europe who were, well, not all over Europe, mostly France, actually, um, who were sympathetic to his cause. At this point, now it's a little fuzzy here, he was breaking from the Catholic Church. So if you're a priest and doing, you know, ministerial things, and you're taking money from the Catholic Church, and you decide that Catholics are kind of off base, you really should separate yourself by not taking their money. So he was, said, I can't do this anymore. And so he declined the benefits of the Roman Catholic Church, and he pastored a secret church in Poitiers, which met in a cave, and which was composed of refugees. So already we see the impact of Calvin's heart on one of the big problems of the day, which was the refugee problem. And that should be ringing bells in our minds. All right, so now in 1536, he publishes the first, vi- first edition of the Institute of the Christian Religion, which looks like this. This is the first volume. There are two of them. But the se- by, by, the, by, by the fifth edition, it becomes a thorough explanation of his theology. But it starts here um, 
1536. And I already said he experiences the sudden conversion promptly and sincerely. And, and after he creates a motto for himself and a seal. The motto is this, prompt and sincere in the work of the Lord. Now, I think if there's one thing we can take from this, is that's a pretty good motto. You know, promptly and sincerely. And then he creates this seal for himself. I took it from the Calvin College seal. His heart in the hand. My heart I give to you promptly and without reservation. Okay. So now, politics. Meanwhile, back in Geneva, there's trouble. The city struggled for political independence from the Duke of Savoy. Catholicism ruled. Um, with Prince Bishop, you can see the combined functions there who exercised the spiritual and temporal. Rebel movements were squashed but not eliminated. That is summarizing a lot of activity. But there's always that corner. There's always the resistance. It's like in the war, there was the resistance. And so Geneva had to figure out what are we going to do. They had a dilemma. Do we, we have to keep the Duke of Savoy out of this because he's a cow. He wants to take over. We don't, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be dominated by anybody. We especially don't want to be dominated by the Catholics. On the other hand, we've got Bern, which is close by. They've got the money, they've got the soldiers, but they're, pro, they're Protestant. Well, that's better than the Duke of Savoy, but still we want to be independent. So always Geneva is working toward independence. That freedom motif comes up. So what they did was they created, and I'm summarizing a lot here, but they created this incredible government structure, which is representative, um, sort of like senators, and then another level of representation, another level of representation, and finally the General Assembly, which is everybody. If you get a General Assembly vote, you're kind of like, okay, everybody's in agreement. So Geneva, I guess, I can't give you numbers, but it was small enough to govern in a fairly democratic system. And uh, Geneva continues its work toward reform. They officially adopt a policy of moderation toward um, Protestants. Um, Farrell and his fellow missionaries were accepted without restraint. Now, I haven't said anything about Farrell yet, but I think it's coming. Anyway, the Protestants see St. Pierre's Cathedral. This is the big cathedral in Geneva. I have a picture coming up. And the Council of 200, that's the Median Council, voted to suspend the Mass. So you can see Geneva now moving away from Catholicism. Geneva actually defeats the Duke of Savoy and rejects Burns control. And one of the ways it does that is to, um, to take all the images out of the church, burn it down, and pay off Burn, which I thought was pretty clever. Okay, so does that make sense so far? All right, so now we have the General Council voting to adopt the religion as law, and Geneva is now officially open to reform. So, um, part of that decision was the formal ad- adaptation of the Protestant religion, and then in so agreeing to that, every citizen agreed to be governed by the moral law of the Bible and to abandon idolatry, i.e. Romanism, and the city council agreed to reject all masses and ceremonies and papal abuses, images, and idols. So this was a formal rejection of Catholicism, but the problem is not everybody was on the same page. So it looks like it's really great, but it's really not. Okay, so here we have the bells of um, St. Pierre's. Um, This is the church. It's very interesting, actually. It's almost like it's got three or four different sections. 
but the bells of St. Pierre are there. And now in Geneva, instead of ringing for the daily masses, it's now ringing for the Protestant services. And this is the church where Calvin um, became a great preacher. So now we have enter Calvin. We've got Calvin. He's written his institutes. Everybody knows he's brilliant. And he's still trying to get out of the way of being caught. So he decides to go to Strasbourg. But he goes through Basel and, um, okay, and he stops overnight in Geneva. And he's thinking that he's going to stay there only for one night. But surprise, surprise, he didn't realize. He, 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 somebody told Guillaume Farrell. Now, this William Farrell guy, let me tell you about him. Fiery, focused, radical. These guys are, I hate to bring in contemporary um, alternative politics and religions, but if we're looking at radicals, we've got it in Farrell. But we've got a Protestant radical. And they, they, they weren't polite to each other, and they weren't always nice, but they were committed to their purpose, and they were on the right track. So Pharrell goes and knocks on the door and says, look, Calvin, you are not going to Strasbourg. Geneva needs you. And Calvin says, he wanted to be a scholar. He wanted to go back in his room and read books and write. But Pharrell said, you are following your own wishes, and I declare in the name of God Almighty that if you do not assist us in the work of the Lord, the Lord will punish you for seeking your own interest rather than his. And here's this young man, before even the age of 30, trembling. But because Pharrell had already established himself as such a strong leader, he said, okay. And you know, for two years, he wasn't even sure he'd done the right thing. That, I find that rather comforting. You know, Here's this guy who turns out to be this great, fabulous, incredible person. He, but he follows the Lord. Calvin enters Geneva, a city committed to Reformation ideals, but lacking in unity and guidance and practical application. So it was an uphill battle. His challenge is moral and political. Not everyone was on board. So the early days of Calvin's ministry in Geneva were troublesome. Um, okay, so, so some of the first thing he does, does in, in Geneva, it, you know, reform happened gradually, Eventually, we'll see the whole city transformed, but initially, he, you know, he's, he morphs from a scholar to a teacher and gradually a preacher. He's very much influenced by Pharrell. And I found this interesting. I'll say why in a minute. Um, he adopted a radical stance of breaking with Rome. He uh, begins to articulate this relationship between church and state, which he believed they should be separate, but they should work together toward common goals. The position on the Lord's Supper, they were not quite on board with Luther. And then um, in a letter to an older mentor, Butcher, who later he works with him, um, Calvin, I I wanted to mention just this whole issue of Calvin's temper, because I know that sitting here in this audience, there are lots of things probably going through your head, and you probably, um, you may know that Calvin was not perfect. He wasn't perfect. And one of the imperfections was his temper. But when Calvin gave vent to his temper, he also repented. He was profoundly upset that he was capable of such things. And so, um, so he refers to it as, um, he always refers to it, that's the Latin term he uses. But I think it's very important to note 
that he, because he'd read the scripture, knew that the Lord's servant must be gentle. And to fail in the office and the character of gentleness is a failure. And so he worked on that. But we said Geneva was not fully on board. He faced constant tension. And then, in 1538, Calvin and Farrell, and by the way, who knows, but whether association with Pharrell might not have aggravated his temper. Pharrell was a fiery guy. And my, my reaction to that is, you know, we're not perfect, but we do learn from each other. And we ought to learn the right things, right? And so who knows? You know, Pharrell was a pro and con in some ways, but he was instrumental in getting Calvin to Geneva. So... Um, in 38, Calvin and Pharrell, they refused to administer the Lord's Supper to those upsetting the unity of the church. So the small council and the council of 200 ordered both men to leave Geneva in three days, and Calvin is out of town again. Okay. Um, interesting that Calvin wanted unity even there, and so really what he was... It was, I forget the guy's name, but there was a man who'd created a lot of ruckus in the town, and Calvin was not happy with him. Calvin was very big on fencing the Lord's Supper. Um, you do not take the Lord's Supper unless you are ready to take it. And if you are demonstrating character qualities which do not reveal a walk with the Lord which is acceptable to him, then you don't get the Lord's Supper. And, Cal- and, and the state said, oh, give him the Lord's Supper. And Calvin said, no, this is the standard of the church we will not do it. And the state said, fine, get out of town. And Calvin left. And Pharrell left. And so, ironically, they start blaming each other. Um, and just as Calvin had refused supper to someone who's being disruptive, the council accused Calvin of being disruptive, ironically. So he flees to Strasbourg. Pharrell goes to Basel. And he moves in with Butcher, you've heard his name before, where he sees a good marriage and pastoral life modeled by his hosts. There's a young man who was so intent with the Lord that when one lady was proposed to him, he said, I will. (laughs) He didn't like the first two people that they suggested he marry. But he did eventually marry someone, and that's good. He said, I don't want anybody if they're going to rob me of my service to the Lord. That was one of his main criteria which is significant. But when he sees the beauty of these relationships, just like Martin Luther and his wife, these are beautiful things. And so, um, you know, as these priests get away from the celibacy issue, they experience these good marriages. And so in his years of exile, two to three years, up to three years, I guess, he pastors a church for refugees, he teaches, he serves as a lawyer, he continues writing, and he marries Idolette de Roer. She was a widow. She had two children. Calvin had no children of his own. They died in childbirth. And times were tough. He sold some of his books to keep food on the table. That's a bad thing for a scholar. And he struggled financially, but he pursued his ministry wholeheartedly. So the big question is to return or not to return. Geneva never left the heart of Calvin, so he was always worried about it. But he recognized here, and this is again where you see Calvin's spiritual orientation. You can't, you, uh, Calvin, to understand Calvin requires that you know your scriptures because you see how much his thinking was imbued with Christian thought. So, of course, we're all knowing that the battle is the Lord's. We all know that our, our war is not 
with earthly things, it's with spiritual things. And he knew that that's what was going on in, in Geneva. And he also insisted that the Christian ministry required respect of church leaders. So to go back was a nerve-wracking kind of thing because he got kicked out of town. But, and he knew that if he were to return to Geneva, it would be painful. And this is where this Cardinal Sadoletto visits Geneva. Cardinal Sadoletto was a very highly placed archbishop in the Catholic Church. Uh, rich, well-robed, impressive. And he comes back and he tries to seduce Geneva to go back Catholic again. And Calvin wrote the responding, they asked Calvin to write the letter. And the letter that Calvin writes to Sadoletto articulates even more firmly his own position on uh, the Christian faith. Um, he is upset that Calvin is, uh, he, he rejects Sadoletto's accusation that Calvin is self-interested. He defends the purity of his intentions. Look, I didn't want to go to Calvin uh, to Geneva in the first place. You know, I did this at the cost of myself. So he's, he does do a lot of self-justification in honor to the Lord. And then he articulates these key concepts in his uh, theology, which is Christianity is not, um, it's all about giving God the glory. It is, it is about individual salvation. I don't want to misunderstand me. But most importantly, it's to give God the glory. Um, to elaborate on that briefly, God's purpose is that we all be saved, but his greater purpose, and that we be, be conformed to the image of Christ. Not that we be conformed to the image of Christ, but that in so being transformed, we bring glory to Christ. It's a very slight difference, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, the process of our transformation brings glory to the Lord. And then um, a relationship with God, he, he does get a little upset that he had been robbed of some of the riches of Christ. Um, because of the Catholic doctrine of works righteousness. Okay, so he goes back to Geneva. He's called back. They said, we need you. But, and I put this quote here because it shows you how reluctant he was to do that. Considering the perplexities which surrounded me from the first time I went there, there's nothing I dread more than returning to the charge from which I've been set free. For though when first I took it up, I could discern the calling of God which held me fast, and by which I consoled myself now. Now, on the contrary, I am in fear that I would tempt him if I were to resume so great a burden, which I have already felt to be insupportable. So don't think that he ran to do that. Do you know, I have to tell you that when I first got my interview at Lincoln, I remember driving up 896 and saying, oh, Lord, please, no, not there. (laughs) I've been at Lincoln for 30 years, and the Lord has greatly blessed me there, but I think it's very interesting that some of the best assignments are the assignments that we don't want. Okay, nevertheless, with wounded pride and confidence shaken, Calvin accepts the call to return to Geneva. And so he knew, because he knew, that without unity and godly leadership, the cause of reformation would never succeed. And so we have a man that I think we need to pause and get a sense of who was this man that we're talking about. He was teachable. God subdued my heart to docility. He was a scholar, preacher, pastor, pastoral, big pastoral heart. I want to say more about that. He wrote letters voluminously. He was a husband, father, friend, 
He lived an obedient life. My heart I give to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. He lived what is known as coram Deo. This is a big term in Calvin studies. It means in the presence of God and under the authority of Scripture. You live in the presence of God. So you wake up in the morning and you know that everything you do is going to be supervised by a sovereign Lord. That's a pretty wonderful thing if we can embrace it. And look at how he responded to this return to Geneva. He didn't go back with an attitude. When Calvin went back to Geneva, he, start, he went up into that pulpit. You know, there's, there are pictures. You can check on them. He goes up the stairs, big pulpit, you know, and he preached the next sermon that followed the one that he was preaching when he got kicked out. <laughs> and that tells you something about his preaching style. Very sequential, very orderly, very thorough, and no attitude. <laughs> you go. Okay, he pursued unity in the church, and he talked about the visible and the invisible church. So none of these reformers really wanted all the difference. So, and he is, he is cited as saying, I would swim ten seas if I could save the church from discord. That's sort of a, a little bit of a paraphrase, but when you think of how long it took anybody to cross the channel or to you know, go to the Americas or wherever, Calvin was really saying that my most profound desire is that the church remain unified, one. And why is that? Because Christ prayed for it. So, again, at the core of Calvin's thinking, it wasn't from here, it was from here. All right, and so also we see in Calvin, he stood in solidarity in defense of fellow evangelical reformers and persecuted evangelical church. So even when he writes the first edition of the Institutes, he writes the preface to Francis I, and it was a defense of the evangelical faith because Francis I was all prepared to... um, yeah, to persecute and to martyr um, these new reformers. So, and he um, wrote letters to people whom uh, he had sent into the mission field. He went in his academy in Geneva. He trained young men that he knew that if they went out to France as missionaries, back to France as missionaries, they would be killed. And some of them he wrote while they were in prison awaiting execution, he would write to them. This must have been a heavy burden. Um, and then, and um, so he did not see himself as an innovator, but rather as one entrusted with recovering the truths of the gospel that have been buried for centuries. So I see in Calvin a great deal of humility, actually. That's an understatement. And so, um, you know, when we talk about Calvin, you hear a lot about Calvin's Geneva. I was a little afraid to go into this because I knew how complicated it would be. But basically, he returns at the request of the Geneva, the general council, which would be everybody, because at this point, they know they're in a big mess. The city is in disarray. It's a terrible mess. I had a quote here. Geneva was known for its brawling, its drunkenness, its immorality. It's sort of like Canterbury, England in the 19th century, a bar on every corner. And they knew that it's either now or never. We've got to get this thing straight. And they saw more hope in the reformers than they did in their former leadership. They wanted freedom. They saw it in the Protestants. 
They wanted order, and they wanted reformed lives. So they, they got them back. The laws were rewritten. Um, Calvin uh, developed his preaching schedule because he said, the people of God need the constant teaching of the word of God to resist the false illusions of the world around them and to live and serve God in a hostile world. I mean, that's a lot of preaching, maybe. And then, um, then he um, also, while he was in Geneva now, he modeled community with his lovely wife. They entertained students. They entertained pastors. And Geneva became, was called by John Knox, and this is a very important little quote, the most perfect school of Christ on earth since the days of the apostles. John Knox, I'm skipping ahead, John Knox was one of the refugees that flooded into Geneva. And he um, saw in Geneva free education for the poor, an educated pastorate, a reduction of of, um, illegitimate births from something like 85 to 35%. Um, um, Now, I'm not saying that Geneva was perfect, but there was a notable and quantifiable improvement in the quality of life. Um, Calvin had welcomed refugees, many of them from France. Many of the Huguenots, as you may know, were skilled, uh, were the strength of the middle class in France. And so when you see a watch that says Geneva on it, you can think Reformation. Because the use of the talents that were brought into Geneva as a result of persecution were immense. And for some, somehow Calvin har- har- harnessed this. And I think it's because he had the work ethic that comes from you know, what the scriptures say about how we should use our lives profitably and so forth. So this is John Knox. And again, lest I forget to say this later, John Knox then is one of those many, many people who had been impacted by Calvin's Geneva and who goes back to their hometown and implements the ideas. Um, the, the, the educational standard in Scotland as a result of Knox's going to Geneva up was immensely affected by, Calvin, by Knox's exposure to Calvin's Geneva. All right, so he stressed the importance of education, compulsory education and free education for the poor. He was big on seminary training for the pastors, embraced the refugees, and he promoted foreign missions. Calvin was a missionary-minded man. He even um, he wanted desperately to go back to France. They wouldn't let him. The consistory, which was the council of the pastors as opposed to the Geneva councils, no, we need you in Geneva. You're not going to go on your mission trip to France, because if you do, we're going to lose you. So he stayed, but he sent others. He supported missions beyond Europe. Apparently, they sent a mission trip to Brazil, which was not successful necessarily, but at least they did it. And so finally, we have Calvin, who finishes well. In 1555, we had a pretty good development because the Genevan Council, um, the, the General Assembly, I think I have a slight misnomer there, became majority Protestant. And so somehow um, there was a greater, they got rid of the really bad elements that were creating discord in Geneva. And so Calvin's, the last years of Calvin's ministry 
were peaceful. He was received without opposition. But up until this point, it was uphill battle. So um, I think when you look over the life of Calvin, you see a lot of struggle. But you see the final, and talk about perseverance of the saints. Um, he persevered. And um, the fruit of his work was evident in many, many ways. His final edition of the Institutes was 80 chapters, and um, he died in 1564 in the company of his friends and pastors, of course, they're pastors. So this is a famous picture of Calvin on his deathbed surrounded by the company of pastors. And um, this is a wonderful book for those of you who are interested. It's from the Oxford series. It's called Calvin's Company of Pastors, and it describes in depth the pastoral care um, that Calvin ex- exercised in the church. So anyway, I thought this was pretty interesting. He advised them to change nothing, to add nothing. And he actually, I, I, I wanted to give you the full quote. Couldn't find it. But the gist of it was, um, sometimes change is uh, very, very, very difficult. So having implemented all these structural changes in Geneva that were in accordance with the word of God, he said, keep it that way. Keep it that way. And then he gave instructions that no monument of any sort should be erected to mark his grave. He didn't want his grave to become a pilgrim. He didn't want to, he would, he would roll over in his grave if he knew what he has become to the modern mind. To the modern uh, mind, which like mine until today, really knew very little of his work, did not fully appreciate the depth of knowledge and but more important than knowledge, I think, was love and obedience for the word to for the word of God and to His Savior. So, what was Calvin's contribution? We have a long way to go. So, all of these things we said. He worked toward a godly society in unruly Geneva. He emphasized the importance of public education, the educated clergy. He pursued biblical truth in the personal and public arena, and he added doctrinal depth to Luther's foundational concerns. So when you look at the Institutes, you have a manual for the church. Calvin um, articulated some of the ways he felt the church should be organized. He um, has a lot to say about every church-related subject. Um, I want to add here that when we look at Geneva, we should think... Wilmington. We should think urban problems because that's what Geneva did. He transformed the city by, the implement, by applying the word of God to the lives of the people. Now, the other thing I want to say is this. This is the Reformation Wall in Geneva, Switzerland, and we have four people there. How interesting. Luther is not there. Well, it's in Geneva, and that's okay. But what I think is important about this picture and this wall, which is pretty impressive. If you were standing right in front of it, you'd come up to about here. Okay, so Calvin is here. Pharrell is here. Calvin would not have ever gotten to Geneva had it not been for Pharrell. Do it or God will be mad at you. And by the way, I forgot to say that when Calvin returns from exile, he was, he was, no, 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 no. When Calvin was on his way, his first being kicked out of Paris, 
Um, Martin Bucher said to him the same thing. You need to come to spend your exile in Strasbourg, and if you don't, you're not doing the will of God. And I said that earlier. These older men were really like... Okay, so this is Pharrell, who was instrumental in um, getting him to Calvin, uh, getting him to Geneva. This is Calvin. This is Beze, uh, Theodore Beze, who um, took over the academy that Calvin started. And by the way, Calvin's academy in Geneva is still a model for academic excellence. And I read that Jefferson wanted to import it. I think it was Jefferson. Some, yeah, I think it was Jefferson wanted to import it, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't do that. They kept it in Geneva. Side side point. So anyway, here's Beze who took over his job as the head of the academy, and then here's John Knox, who had, was the one who said, "This is the most like the New Jerusalem that you'll find on Earth." It's pretty impressive. Um, none of these guys were perfect. So I wanted to list for you, and it's in the PowerPoint. It's too small, obviously. But Calvin was a writer. He loved to write. And um, this, um, there, there's one of the scholars says, you know, Calvin wanted to spend his life writing, but the Lord pressed him into service. But the fact of the matter is, he ended up writing more than he probably ever expected. And some of his commentary includes his comments on his, his um, conversion and so forth. Okay, so there's a lot. And one of the important uh, documents, he, he established um, the background for the contemporary creed, some of the creeds. This ecclesiastical ordinances is an overview of um, church procedure. He uh, wrote on many of the doctrines of the Catholic Church, including soul sleep, um, lots of letters, commentaries, sermons, um, and drafts of the Confessions, the Gallic Confession and the Belgic Confession. And so, I mean, his foundational documents are incredible. And um, I just put this up here that the institutes did evolve, and um, we don't have time to go into all the material that it covers. Um, I commend it to your attention. Now, um, I wanted to just throw up here the fact that this is the famous five, TULIP. Now, um, when you read John Piper, which I hope you do, it's a lovely little book. It's called Five Points Toward a Deeper Experience of God's Grace. He points out that theologians, obviously Calvin didn't come up with TULIP, but theologians subsequent to him have come up with other acronyms, um, including roses. He actually jokes about it. But the bottom line for Calvin is a profound understanding and commitment to the grace of God. And so rather than look at these in details, I thought we could emphasize some scriptures that undergird these ideas. So that, for example, when we read Romans, and I'll put it up here, we see that Calvin most importantly worships God. Calvin is not primarily an academic. Calvin is primarily a lover of the Lord. And I think that if we were to get that in our heads, we would be able to tolerate, if not embrace, and I'm not saying we should, I'm just saying that the blocks to understanding these doctrines, I think, um, are the result of our, our, our resistance and ability to 
access the depths and the extent and the wonder of God's love. And so, for example, if we look at Romans 11, look at the way Paul moves from a theological discussion, which we're not going into here, but to a doxology. He goes from branches and vines and Jews and Gentiles and all this to, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths pass tracing out. This is Calvin saying it's impossible to really fathom the depths of God's knowledge and wisdom. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Sorry, I didn't capitalize there. But who has, yeah. So this, you see, this line here says, look, you can't do anything that God hasn't already done. Okay? Because it's all from him. And, and here, although I think this hymn refers to God, Calvin is profoundly Trinitarian, and all of it goes to Christ. As I said before, it's Christ that is exalted. Um, I did go to Westminster, as Bo said, and I had the privilege of taking courses there for a certificate. But the pastor, uh, the president there is Peter Lilbach, to whom I owe much. And his comment on, on all of good teaching and all of good sermonizing is it must lift up Christ. If we show, if we see more of Christ, we have seen what we need to see. And that's what Calvin does. He does. He, he recognizes that all things come from the Father, and he was also profoundly Trinitarian. I have this great quote I'm going to share with you. Um, I think. He's reading about the Trinity, and he says, as he reads the Trinity, he says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I'm illuminated by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. When I think of any one of these three, I think of them as a whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am, what I'm thinking, escapes me. Now, I realize that's a little confusing, but what you see in that quote is his wonder, his wonder, his his, his, he's breathless with admiration. He's breathless. Okay, so that's the first point. And the second thing I want to say about Calvin's theology is that he's really, um, when he wrote that letter to Sadaletto, he really nailed what it was to be a Christian. And he comes up with these, everybody should be able to say, I've had a person, I, I understand that God is holy. I understand that I'm a sinner. Um, I understand that God has given me grace and he's forgiven me. And I give my life without reservation to the service of God. And so where do we get such a thing? Well, we can go to a proof text like Isaiah and read it. And in this text, you'll see those points. Um, Okay, I guess I have to wrap up. Um, Okay, you know this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And all he sees the Lord. And um, holy is the Lord. Woe is me, sinfulness, I'm ruined. And then one of the seraphs flew to me, 
touched my mouth. See, this is, and your guilt is taken away. Thanks be to God. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who will go for me? And I said, here I am, send me. This is Calvin's life. Here I am, send me. And so finally, um, the characteristics of the church, Calvin said, look, if you don't pray, you've lost it. Delight in God's grace, living before the face of God, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of unity. Why? Because Christ prayed for it. Worship guided by the word. That's the most technical I'm going to get, is the regulative principle. And then this is really great. Let love be your guide and all will be well. So he says you don't have to go into you know all these modern things um, in terms of worship. Let the scriptures be your guide. And then... So we could look at the early church and see that they were focusing on prayer. And this warning I thought was uh, interesting. The near demise of the church prayer meeting in recent times is indicative of the spiritual atrophy that limits our witness to the world. It's pretty strong language. Calvin's legacy, we've already talked about. Biblical principles, the word of God. And final reflections. I wanted to um, put in my two cents worth about theology. I think that good theology is not troublesome. It's comforting, because good theology is biblical theology, and there's no question that that gives us comfort for today and for the future. Next question, can we preserve the unity of the church? According to Augustine, unity in essentials, freedom in non-essentials, charity in all things. Let love be your guide. And the truths of scripture have been worth living and dying for. Does the church retain the same passion for truth? And then last but not least, It's not Calvin. It's every member, a reformer. And this says, I'm a reformer in my church. I just thought I wanted to leave you with a laugh. And um, I have a bibliography at the end if you need to go to it. And I want to um, close with a prayer. And thank you. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of godly leadership. We thank you for those that you have given us today in this church, and we pray for them. And we pray that we would be one, like you called us and you prayed for us. Thank you for Calvin, Lord. Thank you for giving us people like him that we can emulate. And we pray that these truths would be sealed in our hearts and that you would motivate us to serve promptly and without reservation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.